Welcome to The Scrapple, the podcast dedicated to serving up a mix of all things diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Some episodes will be serious, others will be lighter and humorous, and a few might just have you questioning everything. I'm your host, Riley B. Folds. I'm a certified diversity practitioner from Cornell University with a master's in career counseling and nearly 20 years of being a change agent and social justice advocate. For today's episode, I'm joined by Julianne Crummett. Julianne has been working in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space for over a decade, leading disrupted systemic change across media and tech. As founder and CEO of Collective Moxie, Julianne works with organizations, large and small, on revolutionizing their DEI strategies through inclusive storytelling practices, accountability, and internal and external community partnerships. Previously, she was the Vice President of Multicultural Audience Engagement at the Walt Disney Studios. While there, she spearheaded efforts to diversify talent in front of and behind the camera, connect creative projects more closely to communities they touch, and build a more inclusive culture within the studios. I met Julianne at the Mouse House and was instantly captivated. We were able to work on some pretty amazing projects and I'm thrilled that our friendship and professional passion continues to bring us together. Welcome, Julianne. It's wonderful to be here, Riley. Thanks for inviting me to join you today. I'm so excited about the topic of today's episode, representation and inclusion in pop culture. I think Julianne and I agree that we could write a dissertation on the topic. However, the approach we're gonna take is a little bit lighter. In my head and in my own pop culture reference, I thought about David Letterman's top 10 list. However, we only have a limited amount of time. It's going to be more like top five. In addition, I see this as being the first of many episodes with different guests sharing their pop cultural moments. Today, we're going to chat with Julianne about moments and events in pop culture that influence and resonate with her. Again, Julianne, thank you for your time today. Absolutely. Again, it's a pleasure to be here. And I couldn't think of a better topic, Riley, than to talk about pop culture and representation and, you know, what that really means at the end of the day for so many of us. Okay, let's set the stage here. Pop culture is generally defined as a set of practices, beliefs, and objects that are dominant or prevalent in a society at a given time. When I think about pop culture, I think of music, art, literature, fashion, dance, film, and television. I would also say that pop culture actually shapes how we understand our reality. From a DEI perspective, pop culture can offer us relatable characters, help eliminate stereotypes, and increase an understanding about people different from ourselves. Before we get into your list, Julianne, any other thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, I think that, you know, what's really, truly important is a lot of what you just outlined, Riley, right? Is that what we see on screen is often what we either believe about ourselves and or we believe about other people. And Oftentimes, we make judgments, considerations about people based on the things that we see on screen, because maybe that type of person or somebody from that background is not part of our day-to-day life. So the only reference we have is what we're seeing on screen. And this is true, I think, globally, as much as it is in the United States. And so when we really think about what it means to shape culture, to be more inclusive, for us to really start to understand 
each other in different ways, which I think could not be more important right now in our world. Really, storytelling is at the heart of that. Nora Ephron very famously said, everything is copy. And I think that's absolutely true. And so we see how true it is these days with the amount of mis and disinformation that's circulating in this world on the internet and how much division and divisiveness that's causing, which gets back to everything is copy. And so the opportunity we really have as storytellers to shape and change, influence, again, what we believe about each other and also what we truly believe about ourselves. And that for me is probably the most exciting part about talking about my favorite shows is to think about how content actually influenced my own life. And, you know, maybe in that influenced your own Riley and some of our listeners and hopefully storytellers listening. I hope you really think deeply every day about the stories you're going to tell and the opportunity to really collaborate with folks from all different backgrounds so that we all can start to really see and feel ourselves on screen, our friends and people we don't even know in ways that are less stereotypical and quite frankly, more holistic. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Julianne. So inspiring. And I, I love it. So let's get started. Num- <laughs> Number five on the list, the television show Ugly Betty. For those who don't remember the show or never watched it, Ugly Betty was a comedy drama television series on ABC between 2006 and 2010. The series is based on the Colombian telenovela, Yo Soy Betty La Fea. The storyline of the show was described as a young, smart, wise woman named Betty goes on a journey to find her inner beauty. The only problem is it's hard for a slightly less attractive woman to find her beauty surrounded by tall, skinny models at a fashion magazine. But Betty doesn't let that stop her and her positive attitude toward the work. Julianne, tell us more why Betty LaFea made your list. Yeah, I think Ugly Betty is something I talk about all the time. Seeing America Ferreira on screen in that character was really the first time I ever saw myself on screen. And it took till 2006. I'm 35. I was born in 1985. I just like us to all reflect on that television has been around a long time for that to be the case. And there are certainly people, by the way, who still haven't seen themselves on screen, which I think is the huge opportunity. And for me, Ugly Betty is so many things. It was the fact that she sort of, she had her own way of being. She had her own style. She didn't care what was in many ways in vogue. She was living her life in sort of a timeless way. And I think for me, that really translated because I'm a super artistic person and seeing somebody sort of these crazy outfits like that she made that were super bright and colorful and her braces and her glasses, like that was me, like in very literal ways, in many ways still is. I'm wearing glasses though our, our listeners can't see me. And I am the product of having braces on my teeth. And I think that you know, as sort of a a geeky theater kid, you know, seeing a character like that in general was novel. The fact that then she was Latina was then so much deeper for me because she was living a life that I understood very profoundly, which was that she was going to a workplace that was very white in so many different ways. And I mean, culturally white, not just sort of racially in the people that she was with, just didn't function like her home household that we also saw in the show. So we got to see her family life We got to see what it meant for her to go home at the end of every day and sort of live in these different worlds in one city, in New York City. And I think the beauty of that show, at least for me, was that she never had to choose. She lived in abundance in all of these different spaces and places. And like, what a powerful concept that is for any of us, right? This idea that you don't have to choose 
between parts of yourself, right? That you can be your whole self. And for me, Ugly Betty was really that, was the first demonstration of sort of wholeness as a Latina on screen. And with that creativity and that kind of wackiness built in, I think the other thing too, is that she wasn't a super skinny you know, woman. And I think when we think about it, a very sort of Western and American ideals of beauty is a sort of very, you know, thin, tall, you know, as you kind of describe person, uh, woman. And I think as a Latina, like, you know, we have curves, like that's a natural situation. I mean, literally America Ferrer was in another film called Real Women Have Curves. And I think that there's such a, a profundity to seeing her beauty celebrated and her being unabashed in what her beauty meant which is very empowering and like unleashing in a lot of different ways. Like, again, you don't have to hide yourself. You don't have to hide the parts of yourself. And I think profoundly, I cannot think of another show that had as much impact on me personally than that one. And then Bridge, by the way, just as a side note, it took another 10 years to have a Latina centered show on television with Jane the Virgin. So I think the opportunity just overall for Latino and Latinx representation in content is extraordinary. And hopefully there'll just be more and more so that, you know, folks keep seeing themselves in all sorts of different ways. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I definitely see a little bit of Betty in you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I recall watching Lasoy Betty Lafea uh, while I was in Peace Corps in El Salvador, actually. And it actually helped me improve my Spanish while there. So that's my memory. And there we go. And what amazing, by the way, that a format that came from Latin America translated so well into the U.S., right? And I think these are the other things like, Content doesn't actually have to originate in the U.S. to translate into the United States. And Betty LaFea to Ugly Betty is actually one of the first examples of that in many ways. And now we see it all the time when we look at Netflix, right, and so much of the streaming world. But that was really Vanguard at the time. So, you see, you were connected actually to the original novela. So look how that worked, right? How exciting, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think great point, great point. All right, moving on to number four, another great groundbreaking television show, Will and Grace. Will and Grace was set in New York City. The show focuses on the friendship between Will Truman and Grace Adler. The show was on NBC from 98 to 2006 and then rebooted because everyone loved it so much. You know, as mentioned before, pop culture can help us eliminate stereotypes and increase an understanding about people different from ourselves. Julianne, can you help us understand a bit more in context of the importance of this show for you? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think some of the impact of Will and Grace can probably not be understated in a lot of different ways. So, you know, when you look at the history of LGBTQ plus characters on screen, you know, it's riddled with a lot of sort of hiding the kind of dangerous reveal, like, oh my, it's like the butt of the joke, you know, all of these tropes that, you know, anybody who's listening, you can read a whole lot about. Glad has done some amazing work in this space. So glad.org for folks who want to kind of dive deeper into the history. But certainly Will and Grace really marked the first primetime television show that explored, you know, being gay head on as a central tenants in the show. And and in many ways, actualizing and, and normalizing, you know, gay life in a lot of different ways. You and I were talking about this when we were prepping for this conversation about how impactful it was to see also two different gay men in the lead characters and characterized very differently. They are not the same person and sort of very much fleshed out as full characters, even if they have elements that feel a little tropey to us these days, right? At the time, that was revolutionary. That had not happened. And the idea then of seeing 
people in their worlds and the and kind of exchange in the world, I think had also not happened at that point. I think for me profoundly, I've been a deep ally of the LGBTQ plus community for a very long time, having to do with growing up in Atlanta, Georgia, and unfortunately being with a friend after he discovered uh, his car had been vandalized in a hate crime because he was gay. And that experience, I think, profoundly stayed with me in so many ways when I saw that justice wasn't served for him. And so when I see a show like Will and Grace, I think about how many people who had just never encountered somebody who was gay, who didn't understand any of that experience were for the first time in their living rooms, seeing every week, right? You know, Will Truman and Jack, or just Jack. My initials are also Jack. I'm very much love the Jack. Um, <laughs> but also, I think not only seeing them, but the relationships also with Grace and with Karen and the idea of sort of gay men and women, you know, and the relationship there and the dynamic. And I don't think we'd actually really ever seen that much on screen, to be honest, either. But I also think we have to note that it was very white, very upper class in New York, you know, sort of a rich existence in New York. And obviously only one slice, one view of an incredibly diverse community in the LGBTQ plus space. But quite frankly, it paved the way for so many shows after. And I think Modern Family is a great example when you look at Pose most recently from Stephen Canals. And, you know, we have the L word, like everything that was sort of born out of that time, I think was very directly influenced by Will and Grace in a lot of different ways. And thankfully has now shown a much more expansive view of the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah, thanks for that. You know, thinking about that time, you know, I know that I was kind of thinking about and coming to terms with my sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. So as a gay male, you know, I didn't really resonate with Jack, right? But it was nice to see that the Will character there um, to kind of counterbalance some of that stereotypes that we see on TV when it comes to gay characters. So for me, that was really personal. And I could imagine, you know, like, you know, my mom or my sister watching the show and just helping them like know more about me as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Shifting from television to the big screen, number three on your list, Ooh. Black Panther. I know you have a personal and professional connection to the film. Tell us more about the film, your connection, and then how you believe it changed the cinematic universe forever. Absolutely. I mean, I think we'd remiss if we didn't talk about Black Panther, to be honest. I know when you and I were prepping for this, it was sort of became an obvious one, I think, for both of us for different reasons. I had the pleasure of sort of intersecting with Black Panther, the film, in, in a couple of different ways. So backing all the way up from my time at Google, so this is before I ever joined Disney and Riley, you and I ever met, was I was um, I still sit on the advisory board for the Science Entertainment Exchange out of the National Academy of Sciences. For folks who want to learn more about that, feel free to Google Science Entertainment Exchange. And we at Google had sponsored a retreat of writers and scientists for a weekend in 2015. And one of the writers who attended that retreat was Joe Cole, who actually was writing Black Panther at the time that he came to the retreat. And part of, you know, and Joe and I have talked about this, part of the science and the technology that you see sort of in the film, very much directly inspired by the scientists that he met along the way with the help of the Science Entertainment Exchange. Science Entertainment Exchange has actually advised on every Marvel movie since Iron Man 2. 
And the exchange's mission is to better communication of science and science concepts to the public. At the same time, looking at the stereotypes around scientists and technologists and tackling that also through the storytelling um, so that we can have a much broader view of who a scientist and technologist is. And in, in fact, in real life, they exist in all shapes, colors, sizes, forms, right? And so Joe, in attending that retreat, I think really inspired a lot of what you, you saw in Black Panther and actually very much the Shuri character, who to me is almost in many ways an accurate portrayal of women in science in ways that we hadn't really seen before. And I think really paved the way, I hope, for what we end up studying is a Shuri effect, that the character herself inspiring so many women and particularly Black women around the world to see themselves as scientists, as technologists, and who can also be fabulous and funny and you know, you don't have to be sort of limited to the lab coat, meaning that you can be sort of this 360 human. And I think Shuri just accomplishes that on so many levels in terms of a role model, in terms of just really reflecting scientists as they are, as 360 sort of human beings. And so to see the impact of science and technologists on Joe and in that representation for me has always been profound. Just for our listeners, the breaking of stereotypes around scientists and technologists and engineers is so important because we are literally building a digital and technical world that does not have everybody building it. And the, quite frankly, we have probably like less than 15% of the global population that's actually really building the code and the artificial intelligence that's driving so much of our lives right now and will continue to in the future. And if we don't tackle sort of the biases that are being reinforced by not having everybody at the table designing the future, literally, that we're building, it's going to affect all of us. Yeah, thank you, Julianne, for those insights. And I can recall, you know, that period when the film came out, the products were released, just so much energy and pride that I saw in my Black friends and colleagues. It just transcended anything I had ever seen before, that a movie could have such influence in that way. Absolutely. I mean, I've never seen anything like it in all the time that I've been in entertainment, you know, and we'll we'll be hard pressed. And I hope I hope there are other things that come that do the same for so many communities. And again, for the black community, you know, we shouldn't be stopping with Black Panther. It should be hopefully unleashing so much more content. Okay, moving on to number two on your list, we're going to shift to a book. It's called Black No More. And, you know, I was unfamiliar with this title before you and I chatted about this episode. Now it's on my must read list. Can you share an overview of the story and why it was important to you? Sure, absolutely. So Black No More is quite an unknown piece of literature to a lot of people. It's a book, unfortunately, it just hasn't made the rounds as much. It is a book from the Harlem Renaissance by an awesome author, George Schuyler, and is considered to be the first published African-American science fiction novel. And I actually read the book as part of my junior year class in college on the Harlem Renaissance. It was a seminar. And I actually ended up writing a paper on it and on Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man by James Weldon Johnson, uh, which is another excellent book. And the premise of Black No More is that a mad scientist creates a machine that turns Black people Aryan white. And then, as I like to say, chaos ensues, which is to say that the Ku Klux Klan decides to start trying to track down Aryan white people because they think they were at once Black. And then people start trying to brown their skin And it becomes an entire satire, a very well done satire 
on our racial hierarchy and structure in the United States and really turning it on its head and making us take a hard look at it, but through science fiction and through satire and comedy. And I've never read anything else like it. And I've thought for the longest time it would be an amazing film. Jordan Peele, if you ever listen to this, please make this movie. I think you would be an extraordinary director on it because you have to be able to do satire well to hit it. But it really unlocked for me, I think, in so many ways, this idea of like, how do we even define these things of sort of whiteness, of blackness, of brownness, uh, of sort of everything in between and, and up and down. And this book does such a great job of making, you know, the reader think really critically around how we define those things and what does that even mean? And making it a, kind of in this context of, you know, a mad, you know, quote unquote, by the way, mad scientists talk about stereotype back to that, but that, you know, this idea of science sort of somehow turning that on its head. And for me, I have, I have not read anything that I think has stuck with me for so long. Uh, clearly, I have thought deeply about Jordan Peele directing this, and I, I'd recommend everybody to read it. I think it's a it's a really interesting book in conversation with the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, which uh, came out last year and is a wonderful read as well on really looking at the caste system, essentially the racial caste system that we have in the United States, and also putting it in a global context. And in many ways, to me, Black No More is almost in conversation with caste and vice versa, but done through a completely different realm and a completely different lens. And so, yeah, I just encourage everyone to take a read. Also, Autobiography of an Ex-Color Man by James Walden Johnson. And I have a lot of other books I could go on for days, but we'll stop there. <laughs> No, thank you so much. And it, it does sound like a movie just waiting to happen. And I hope yes. that you're connected to it at some point, because that would be amazing. Oh, yes. It feels like it writes itself at some level, quite literally. <laughs> Thanks, Julianne. I can't believe that we are already running out of time and we are at number one on your list. We shift to music. The title of the song is La Vida es un Carnaval by Celia Cruz. I wish we had a clip of the song, but due to copyright and royalties, we cannot share. Not that you have to belt out any of the lyrics, unless you want to. Tell us why you consider this, as you call it, your theme song. Absolutely. So um, for those not familiar with the song, please look it up. La Vida es Carnaval. And Celia Cruz is an icon in Cuban music, in music more generally. I myself am Cuban-American and Puerto Rican and grew up listening to Celia Cruz and Carnaval for me, is such an amazing song. So just a little bit, if you've probably heard it before, but you can't place the title, which is... Like that, right? And so... That was really good, by the way. Really good. Thank you so much. I think that the the spirit of the song encapsulates how I see life in so many different ways. So the lyrics are basically saying like, there are all these horrible and tough things in life, but that life is really a carnival and you have to you have to keep living it. That's the whole idea. And even in the song, she'll list all of these things that like, you know, are negative things in our life. And she basically says, wow, like we're just going to throw it away. And I, I think for me, I live in a framework daily around joy and around abundance. And there is no song to me that better encapsulates that, which is, it's not that you ignore the fact that there are hard and tough things in your life, but it's the active choice of what is going to control your feelings that day, what is going to drive what you do that day. And it's it's not going to be the negative things. 
It's not going to be those things that make life tough, that quite frankly, make life life. It's going to be all the things in your life that bring you beauty, that bring you love, that move you forward. And I think that, you know, even when you listen to that beat in the song, it's almost this kind of like moving forward beat. It's just, it's continually driving you. And for me, I think that's why the song has stuck with me for so long and encapsulates really at the core of who I am. And then obviously in Celia Cruz, you know, for me, she's one of my heroes. And she talked about kind of coming full circle to our Ugly Betty conversation. She is somebody who defied all stereotypes about who a Latin woman is or who a woman is. She was Afro-Latina, was, you know, relished in her dark skin, was totally amazing and outlandish with her costumes and her hair and like everything that she would do. She just fully owned who she was. And in that way, that sort of ugly Betty for me was such a profound exercise and that you don't have to choose. Celia Cruz as a real living human being lived that, embodied that. She was like, you're not going to define who I am in quite a male dominated industry of music, in quite a machista culture in Latin America, in the racism that exists, right? And and her being an Afro-Latina and just really transcending and moving through all of that in the most beautiful and empowered way. And so for me, actually, almost in a full circle. Thanks, Julianne. I love that that song serves as your anthem. When I think about my career and the soundtrack that goes with it, one song that sticks out for me is Free Your Mind by In Vogue. I love the lyric, free your mind and the rest will follow. Yeah, that's, that's my singing ability, by the way. In these divisive and polarizing days, I wish more people would keep these words close to their hearts and minds. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Julianne, our time is coming to a close. I want to thank you again. This was so much fun. I hope you will come back. So that's an open invitation. I would love to. I would love to. <laughs> thank you. And to our listeners, thank you. The conversation doesn't stop here. I ask that you connect with me on Twitter at The Real Scrapple and go ahead and tweet me your top five pop cultural influences. Until next time, take care of each other just a little more. 